We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. We want to welcome to our podcast our guest, Natalie Alexander. Natalie is a super mom to three boys ages 10, 8, and 5. Today, she shares her experience getting a grim CHD diagnosis with her second baby, Sawyer. You will hear her story of strength and hope and perseverance. You will walk away with a clear understanding from a parent perspective exactly what a CHD is and some of the things you can do to help process the news that you have received. We Saved You a Seat definitely would like to thank our listeners for joining us today for part one of Natalie's two-part podcast. My name is Natalie Alexander. I'm the mother of three children, Nolan, Sawyer, and Dawson, so my three boys, and my husband, Ben. We um we all work together, well, Ben and I work together at our restaurant group here in town, McNally's group, and we've been doing restaurants since all of our children were born, so in some ways, our life is a little extra chaotic because <laughs> that industry is unique in itself. Um, we were introduced to the NICU specifically with our oldest. He was two months premature and my water broke early. They tried to keep me pregnant. It did not work. And so he was in the NICU, but despite being two months early, uh, the steroid shots did their job. You know, he was on oxygen a couple of days, had to learn to eat and was really out within 10 days. But I always said that that kind of prepared me, you know, a, like a lukewarm experience to the NICU and kind of what the medical world would look like from the eyes of a mother, you know, and a parent. Um, And although it was scary at the time, you know, it wasn't great at the time, we had Sawyer, our middle child. He really, really broke those doors open to what the medical community is really like. And Sawyer was born with CHD, which is a term for congenital heart defects. Some people also call it congenital heart disease. It kind of is interchangeable. A lot of the newer, um, kind of the newer ways is straying away from the word defect. You know, some people feel like that might not be um, as PC as it could be. I personally don't have a qualm with either one. You know, CHD to me is just the nasty beast that, you know, lives under our bed at night. So whatever you call it, you know, it's the same either way. And a one in 100 kids are born with CHD. This is a very common birth defect is actually, I think, the most common birth defect, if I'm not remembering my facts correctly from the old days. And it's, you know, I feel like people know that it's around. I feel like a lot of people have that second cousin once removed that had a hole in their heart and it closed up. You know, everyone seems to have a story like that, which is wonderful for those people. But there's a whole different world to CHD, a whole different side where it's a critical CHD and their heart defect is not compatible with life. And these parents and families are really forced into a very violent and unpleasant and um, just terrifying journey right off the bat. And that's kind of the world that we ended up in. We didn't know he had a heart defect. Actually, his original anatomy scan was clear. Everything looked great. 
and which was a relief to us because my older child had hydronephrosis. So he kind of had something we were aware of early and it didn't really do much, you know, but at the time, again, something that was scary. Sawyer's came back clear. Great. No problem. And in a bittersweet way, I ended up having gestational diabetes. And so because of this reason, I had extra scans, all these, you know, biophysical profiles just to make sure everything was going smoothly. And as we got towards the very end, we were about 36 weeks in, um, I had my normal workup. Everything was fine. I was supposed to come back another week and they called me almost immediately after I left the office and they said, we need to see you again tomorrow. Something looks a little strange with your baby's heart. And, you know, we need to look into that further. So that kind of launched us into the world that is EHD. We just didn't know it yet. We didn't know what was coming. So in utero is when you learned that there was something wrong with his heart. Is it just one of those things that the doctors say, you know, I'm sorry, but this is just one of those things that happens. So early screening with prenatal care, you have your typical anatomy scan at 20 weeks. Oftentimes, if a child has a critical heart defect, this can get missed. Um, the fact of the matter is, is their heart develops at six weeks old and most of the time congenital heart defects, you know, they're random. It just happens. It is one of those things that is just unlucky. There are a couple defects that are synonymous with other things. Children born with Down syndrome often have an accompaniment heart defect. We have certain genetic disorders, um, that can kind of roll into that. And then there are the ones like me where you're just, it's run of the mill and it's, it's just about luck. I did have gestational diabetes. However, with the heart formation and what his defect is, it, you know, his heart was already formed before my gestational diabetes kicked in. And it, you know, it was just a matter of winning the lottery. No one wants to, to win. But when you have these scans, you have your 20-week anatomy scan, it's so often missed. I can't even express how often this gets missed. Some people get lucky and they found out at 20 weeks, oh my goodness, something terrible is wrong or something mild is wrong, whatever it may be. But that's really not all, that's not the case. I got extremely lucky in having the later scans. Most people aren't really having those detailed ultrasounds that late. You know, that's kind of, you're at the end at that point. So... A lot of parents, they have their children are born and everything is seemingly fine because when you're born, you have a PDA, which is a little hole in your heart that kind of, that you need in utero, but you do not need it once you're outside of the womb. And so that naturally closes up on its own for most people. And, you know, you go on your merry way, but these kids with these heart defects, as that hole starts to close, and if you don't have a diagnosis already, a lot of times the heart, as that hole starts to close, the baby will start to get into distress. It'll go into distress and the oxygen levels kind of start to tank. The stability starts to tank. And a lot of families go home with their baby and rush back to the ER with a dying baby, you know, hoping to save it. I mean, it is really traumatic what can happen if you don't catch it beforehand. So we were very lucky. I also consider it lucky that we found out towards the end because once we got our diagnosis, which was very bad, the prognosis was not good um, for Sawyer, I was a zombie. I was totally um, just not. I mean, I was destroyed. And so 
I was always a little grateful that I didn't have to know at 20 weeks because it gave me extra time to just be oblivious and um, happy, you know, but it did give us the lead time to be able to prepare mentally, prepare for our older child, what would happen when we went into labor, get a team in place and whatnot. So those, you know, those scans are important, but they, they miss a lot. And if I, you know, in a perfect world, I think an anatomy scan would happen at 20 weeks. And I firmly believe there should be another one at more like 32, 33 weeks where the heart is bigger and they could pick up on more. And I know that that's an advocacy piece that I know a lot of our families talk about is the pulse ox. And simply putting a pulse ox on your baby after they're born can help diagnose yeah. some of these in, in the baby once they, once they have arrived. So yeah, and absolutely. I, can. And it now, I mean, in Oklahoma, at least it is a law. They do do that as part of the assessment after the baby is born, which I think is crucial and so simple. It costs nothing. You know, a lot of these tests to do these things do cost money and insurance doesn't like to pay and it kind of opens Pandora's box. But this is something that's so simple. You put a little tiny probe that does not hurt the baby on their finger and it can give you a lot of information. Not always, you know, it doesn't catch everything. It's not the end all, but it is a very good, easy, costless step. So you received the diagnosis while he was in utero and you, you, you spoke about the anxiety that kind of entered your world once you learned about this. Can you explain to maybe a mom, maybe they've just learned about the diagnosis and the prognosis for their baby and the anxiety that they feel and some things that were able to get you through some of those moments, because it sounds like you weren't giving a great outcome. And the doctors kind of sounds like grim in, in some of their, their words and just not real encouraging. Was there anything that helped you kind of get through that? And then yeah. why, why don't you tell us a little bit about that prognosis? So we go in for our scan, you know, to kind of see what is going on and I lay down. It's the same gal that normally does my scans. She's chit-chatting as usual. And she asked me a question about the baby's nursery. And she put the wand on my belly. And immediately, that was the last time she ever brought up my baby. She did not talk about him at all. She moved on completely. And I knew, I kind of, at that point, knew we were in trouble. Um, Just by picking up on her mannerisms and she did a great job. It was nothing that I don't know what she could have possibly done differently. You know, she wasn't sitting there sobbing or anything, but you know, I, I knew then that something was going wrong. They led us to a conference room where my husband joined me and, you know, the doctor said, I'm so sorry, but your son has Epstein's anomaly. It's a very rare congenital heart defect. And, you know, we're going to have to, take some serious measures. Once he's born, you're going to have to have a C-section. This is what a normal heart looks like. This is what your son's heart looks like. And that is the the standout moment for all heart parents. When you go into the room, they show you a picture and a diagram of a normal heart, and then they show you what your child's heart looks like. I mean, that is how it goes for everybody. And you look at it and you're thinking, how on earth is this baby going to live? Like, how can a person live with their heart looks like this? And, you know, of course, I, I'm a person that needs to know the worst case scenario. That is just something I need to know. And I said, well, what does this look like? What is this prognosis? You know, and he said, look, his, his heart is so dilated. It is so overworked. He's in heart failure and his heart is taking up his entire chest cavity. We don't even know if his lungs can inflate. And 
you know, you should prepare yourself. And I said, okay, well, if he survives birth, you know, what does it look like after that? He's like, well, barring, you know, options for medicines and surgeries, he's like, it's less than 50% chance he'll make it to the age of five. But you should really prepare yourself because I don't even know if his lungs are going to be able to inflate at this point. So, and we went in the hall and broke down and called our families in the hall of this clinic, you know, and went home. I think I sat in the bathtub for about two hours, just not even crying. I was just numb. And, um, you know, the tears certainly came later, but it was just like an out-of-body experience. And one thing I like to tell moms that are in the, the beginning is that it is so normal. Oh my gosh. Like if you're feeling like a shell of a person, if you cannot stop crying, if you cannot find an ounce of hope to be had, that is normal. If you shut down, if you can't cry, that's also normal. If you have to look at nothing else but optimism and cannot even address the what ifs, that is also normal. There is a whole variety of emotions that are going to happen to different people. You might experience them all. You might experience one, two, they might come day to day. And, um, gosh, the beginning's terrible. It really is just terrible. I don't know a single heart parent that doesn't have that day, that very specific day etched into their brain forever. I mean, it, and we remember it on the calendar. I mean, that's how traumatic that day is. And as you move forward, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of time to wrap my brain around it. As I said, I found out later. So we were in planning mode. I mean, that was kind of what kept me afloat was that it was like, okay, here's our team. Here's what we're going to do. This is what this is going to look like. I had to meet with the head neonatologist at the NICU, Dr. Jackson. She was wonderful and meet with our new cardiologist who, you know, she was the first one that kind of had any glimmer of hope for us. And she said, you know, I see a forward flow through his pulmonary artery. And I think that's something to be happy about. And I remember that. And I was like, I guess, you know, it was hard to kind of, for me, I was one of those people where hearing good news was, I wasn't really having it. <laughs> you know, I was just kind of like, this is, this terrible thing is going to happen. And if it doesn't, I'll just be pleasantly surprised. But for now, I'm just preparing myself for the worst. And everyone's going to find comfort in different ways. To be honest, there's not a lot of comfort to be had at the very beginning. But once your baby is born, and for those who get diagnosed after the baby's born, once they have a little, you know, a little time, and you're just looking at your baby, and you just realize that your fight's for them. You know, you your pain doesn't matter. Because you just got to get them through it. So whatever that process looks like for you, for a new mom, a new dad, it's going to look different for everybody. And you're going to find different ways to get through it. And I'm here to tell you, um, get therapy sooner than later because, uh, you know, I think that looking back in hindsight, I really should have done therapy for myself. Um, I just think it would have helped the process and things a little bit better on the front end you know, as they were coming up versus doing it years later where I had to unpack all the emotional bags that come with that. But, um, you know, the beginnings, it's just, it's rough. It just really is. And I think it's important for families to lean into their support group. Oh my gosh, I can't, if I didn't have our family and friends to help us, and if I wouldn't have accepted help, I can't, I don't, 
think I would have stayed afloat. And it was, it's really hard for me to accept help from people. Actually, I'm a little better about it now, having gone through that. Um, but at the time, you know, it's, it was just, I just couldn't go through the motions. So I let other people take over. And that was the best thing for me. Letting other people step in, let them bring the food, let them mow your grass so your husband doesn't have to do it. Those little bitty things add up big time. If they want to watch your other children, let them watch your other children. They're not offering because they don't want to. They're offering because it's the only thing they have to offer. They can't give us what we really want and need, which is a healthy baby. But what they can do is make a tiny piece of our day easier. And I always recommend people to lean into that. Um, it was pretty crucial for me and for my husband. Any kind of response that you have that it's okay. I mean, yes. because that is, that is how you deal with it. And, yes. um, and the weird thing is, is people all, ugh, people, when you're going through stuff like this, and it's not just related to this, I've noticed it now more than I ever have. And I'm sure I'm guilty of it um, prior to knowing this world. People mean well, like first and foremost, they always mean well. But people really like to tell you how you should feel. Right. Um, I don't know why that is. And I think it's important if you're a support person to someone for anything traumatic, you can have an opinion on how they should feel or handle things, but you've got to acknowledge that what they're feeling is normal and okay. Like, otherwise they're not going to listen to you. <laughs> it's just not our place to tell someone how they're going to feel. And, you know, alternate, alternately to that, I always, I got, I started getting very somewhat irrationally upset because people would give me these really weird cliche sayings and it would run right through me. I mean, I'm, st I, that's eight years ago. I think I'm still, I'm like finally getting over it, but like, you know, and they'd say things like, well, God never gives you more than you can handle. Or, you know, if you, you know, if you believe it's going to happen, you know, just put your positive energy into this. It'll be okay. Actually, it'll be okay was one that made me want to just rip my hair out. You don't know that it's going to be okay. And actually the odds are it's not okay. And, um, you know, the harsh reality is my son did live, but nothing about that was okay. He's, you know what I mean? He was okay in the long run. He's here now, but none of that was okay. And so there are little things that I, you know, for support roles, you know, if I get calls all the time, families that are new to this and someone wants to, you know, Hey, how do I handle this? What can I do for my sister? What can I do for my best friend or my spouse? And we go through that long list of like, okay, this is what this could look like. This is what they could be feeling like. Here are some really helpful things for you to do, you know, offer to do the mundane stuff. Like I mentioned cut their grass, take out their trash, um, bring them food, bring them disposable plateware so they don't have to wash it. Little things like that. But it's also like, also just be there for them and listen and maybe leave some of those cliched statements at, you know, at the door. And you can, it's perfectly fine to not know what to say. You won't, you will not know what to say. You just say, I love you. I'm here for you. Let me do this for you. You know, and that's it. When you ask someone that's in tr in the middle of trauma right. what they need help with, I mean, I would just be like, uh, you know, you don't, it's just really hard to conjure up stuff and make decisions. And so I have really, over the years, just adapted, like, I will be bringing you dinner at this time. I will put it on your porch, whether you're there or not. Um, or I've sent someone to cut their, gr cut your grass. 
that's just happening. Like, you know, and you know the person well enough to know if that's going <laughs> to send them into rage or anxiety, I, you know, most of the time. But it taking the just taking charge is usually the best way because they don't know. They just you just don't know when you're going uh, through it. I love that. I love every suggestion you just offered. Okay. Are you ready to walk through the day of his delivery with us? Sounds like it was um, pretty emotional. Uh, pretty yeah. uh, just wondering if we were going to be able to hold our baby, see our baby, meet our baby. Um, yeah. So why don't you walk through that, that delivery day for us? So delivery day was planned out for a Monday. We had a huge team ready to go, you know, because like I said, he was already in heart failure. This was not going to be a traditional birth. And even a lot of heart babies can have normal births and it's not traumatic until later. So, but ours was not looking good. Everything was pretty ominous. So we had our whole team ready to go. 8 a.m. That was like game time. We had family in town to watch my son. My mom was going to come with us to the hospital. Everything was in place. And then at midnight, my water broke. <laughs> um, eight hours before my scheduled C-section, my water broke as I was getting into bed. And my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, oh, crap. Okay. Um, this is happening. So I'm already starting off anxious because of what our situation is. But now I'm even more anxious because our team is asleep. Our entire team is at home asleep, not on call at the hospital. They're, they're at home. And so we go to the hospital. We, of course, have already called our doctor. He comes in. His hair was all disheveled, you know, because we woke him up from out of bed. And he's like, we can't wait, you know, your son. We don't know what's going to happen. So if you start contracting, it could put him into distress. We have to do this. I know the team that we picked is not here, but, you know, we're briefing everybody. They are, you know, a lot of the heads of the departments already knew this was happening the next day. So that was you know, kind of helpful. It didn't feel helpful at the time, but it was helpful looking back, you know, in hindsight. Um, they took him via C-section and I heard him cry and which was good because I was afraid. I, that was one of my questions. I asked if he would cry and they said, well, we don't know. We don't know what he's going to do. And he had furiously purple hands and feet, like almost black hands and feet, but he was crying and his face was pink and he was a healthy weight. Like aside from the color in his hands and feet, like, you know, he looked pretty healthy, really. You would not know. And, um, so they let me kind of touch him, give me a little, give him a little kiss. And the plan was for my husband to follow him to the NICU. So we would know where he was and, you know, just like you go with the baby. So because I had a C-section, I couldn't see him. You know, it's like 10 or 12 hours before you can get up and go. I mean, I think within the halls of the hospital, it's like a mile between where labor and delivery is and the children's hospital in NICU. Um, someone might be able to correct me on that. But I mean, it is, if it's not a mile, it's almost a mile. It's a long, long way. And I just laid there and I had this huge fear that I would, that he would die before I could properly look at him or hold him. And I, um, spent the entire time dwelling on that, of course, but we were getting updates and we knew he was stable. They had to intubate him, which is to put him on a ventilator. I'm sure people are familiar with that term now as of <laughs> COVID times, more people are aware what that is. Um, but I knew what it was and I knew it wasn't great, but I guess I, you know, I didn't really fully understand, you know, so I finally got to go see him and he looked, you know, he was pink. He was fine. 
intimated, you know, and of course I stupidly asked, like, oh, can I hold him? And they're like, oh, no, no, nope. Like, he is intimated. He's stable, but, you know, like, that's a really treacherous slope. You know, you're stable one minute and then you're not. So, you know, we're, we're like, okay, he's here. Now we're starting all these tests. Let's see what he, you know, let's see what he's got. But within that night, we had a tornado warning and we were on an outside room. So we had to move to an inside room. And just from moving rooms, he started getting really touch and go. He was really not stable anymore. And I still didn't fully understand what was happening. I mean, it's not that they weren't. I don't think it's the fact that they weren't telling us. I, I just think we didn't know any better. And I know for a fact they were trying not to scare us. But at one point, we went back to our room to eat. And she called. She's like, you're going to want to come back and probably not leave again and we're like okay you know and there are probably 20 people in the room um and people looking in the windows and i remember feeling kind of like a zoo exhibit um i'm like well you know people are trying to learn i get it but i couldn't figure out what the what the fuss was about at the time and looking back it's like oh that's because he was actively trying to die and things were going really poorly and I just didn't get it. And they had to put him on a machine called ECMO, fancy name for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation machine, which is a bypass, a circuit that takes blood out of your body, oxygenates it, puts it back into your body. It lets your heart and your lungs rest. And they were like, look, this is all we have left. His lungs aren't working properly because, as you remember, his heart was too big. They were smashing into his lungs. And this is our last try. And we don't think, we're not even sure it's going to work, but we have to do this. And so they put him on ECMO, put him on the circuit so he didn't have to oxygenate his own blood, you know, let him rest. And that was at you know, 20 hours old, I think. Not common for a neonate. I mean, it certainly happens, but not what you would consider in the realm of normal. And it just, I just didn't get it. I I, I don't know if I was, it was, I was. I would wager to bet I was probably in shock a little bit. Um, my husband had a moment at one point where he he yelled at the baby. He yelled at Sawyer and he said, please don't die. We need you to stay here. Like, just don't do this. You know, and he ran off and he went to the chapel for a while. And I just sat there like, I don't even think I could cry at that point. It was so surreal. And I, you know, when they go through this ECMO and some of and intubation, they have to, they sedate them really heavily, but sometimes they have to put them, like, they have to paralyze the children. Uh, Sawyer was a tough guy. He always liked to fight his sedation, so he often had to be medically paralyzed, and there are times where you would see tears in his eyes that he couldn't move. So I had this rule that if you're going to be in his room, you are not allowed to cry or to make a fuss because he couldn't and um that's not remotely healthy so i 10 out of 10 don't recommend parents doing that um it was not probably not the healthiest um or fair to anybody that loved him but um i just at the time it was something i could control and so we sat there for, you know, days with this huge machine and all these drips and waiting to see if he would make it. And I just felt like 
I was just watching a movie. You know, you're just watching a show. Like, it wasn't really happening to me. That couldn't possibly be my baby there. And they let our older son, who was only 13 months old at the time, um, come into the NICU, which is not allowed normally. You know, you can't have toddlers or babies in the NICU for multiple reasons, for safety and different things. But um, they knew that Sire was unlikely to leave. And I was afraid that we would never be in the same room as both of our children. And so they made an exception. And it was kind of a heartbreaking photo session. We all looked terrible <laughs> in the pictures, you know, because we were really emotional. But um, I treasure them. Um, we got to bring Sire home. And that was great. But that photo session... Whew, it's just kind of a reminder of what he overcame and um, what we accomplished as a family. And um, they're hard to look at sometimes. Some days it's easy, some days it's not. As you can tell, today is not a harder day <laughs> to talk about it. Um, cause, but it just is very traumatic. It's not something parents are supposed to see. You're not supposed to see your baby paralyzed or hooked up to these giant machines and drips, and you're not supposed to have your friend plan your baby's funeral just in case. You know those things are not supposed to happen, and unfortunately, they do. And worse outcomes than mine certainly happen. We were lucky. After ten long days, I've held my baby for the first time. He finally was able to come off of ECMO, which they did not think was going to be possible. I I found out later as I got more cozy with the staff and friendly. They're like, oh, yeah, we didn't think he was ever going to survive. I mean, but they didn't give up on him ever. I mean, Dr. Jackson stayed by his side overnight. I think their shift was long over. Our cardiologist, they didn't have to give him another shot. Actually, I hear all the time stories of parents across the country where the doctors just won't. They won't put them on ECMO because it's unlikely, highly unlikely. And I get it. I know. But I'm just really... I'm not here to tell anybody how to do their job, but I'm just really grateful that our physicians were willing to give him a chance um, because they would have been wrong. Like if they, you know what I mean? Like he lived and they didn't think he would. So man, I mean, there was little hope to be had, but it, it ended up being much better than we thought, you know, and I held him after 10 long, long days and wondered if I would ever hold him alive even. And, it was that picture, another picture I treasure. You know, the anguish is on my face. But I was so happy. We were just so happy that he, he made it. Those family photos that capture moments that we aren't sure we're going to get beyond or ever be able to recreate uh, with those same people are just incredible opportunities. It Do is. you remember was was that something you had to fight for, or or did the did the hospital offer that opportunity for you to bring in your oldest? I can't be certain. I feel like it was something I was very worried about, and I think I voiced it to somebody. I think I told the nurse that I was afraid of this, and then if memory serves, I think she just took it to the team and was like, "Look, like she's worried about this, and it's a real possibility." Um, that I'm pretty positive that's how it went down. Um, things get a little fuzzy with some of those smaller details, um, you know, because you're just like, eh. but we had a really wonderful primary nurse who is still our friend to this day. And she 
definitely helped advocate for me. Like the nurses take care of the patients, but she took care of me too. You know, she and my husband, like she really was like, made sure, don't forget to drink your water. You know, you got to take care of yourself. Do you need a snack? Do you want to take a snack break? Like, Hey, he's really like asleep. Go home, go take a rest with your husband, go see Nolan, you know, your older son. And man, like the NICU staff, I couldn't have handpicked a better team. They carried us through the whole thing really and became like our family. Those NICU nurses, they, they may be knowledgeable in the babies, but they also take care of the family. And so they've got a lot on their plate. We do. And they certainly don't have to be nice to your nurses, <laughs> you know, over the, over the years, you know, I would bring them snacks and little treats and, and, um, it's needed. They need to feel like they're seen, but I tell you, it goes a long way to treat them with respect. In my opinion, it comes back to you. You know, they never would have done a bad job if I had, but I just, they need that. Everyone deserves to feel valued and seen during, you know, that's a really important job. Even when we're in crisis as a family or as a parent, um, to know that others uh, need to be seen as well as they do their jobs. Oh, their yeah. And I, love I that. think it makes them better professionals, in my opinion. You know, if you're, if you have families that treat you respectfully and they give you insight to their world, you're going to be a better provider based on those experiences, you know, and we've done through family advisory council, you know, where we talk to residents and new nursing staff. And it's like, look, I know this is another day in your world, but this is some parents' worst day of their entire life. And you got to remember that. And that's important. And I think, you know, the more appreciative and at least just gracious uh, families can be with the caregivers, I think that makes them better providers. I truly do. And I know that it's not all easy. And when you're stressed, man, is, you know, you're not always going to agree with everybody, but people can do a little better <laughs> being nice. Okay. So you've, you have, you've talked about the NICU and being a part of that community. Did y'all ever have to go into the cardiac um, care unit and, and did your hospital have a pediatric care, cardiac care unit, or was it, um, or was it all done inside the NICU? So NICU was only for neonates. You could not go back to the NICU once you were discharged, um, unless in very rare circumstances every now and then. But so we went home and everything was kind of okay for a couple months and nobody could explain why. It was like, wow, like you just had this horribly dramatic thing. We're on pretty minimal meds as far as like as sick as he was anyway. And then his second heart defect started kicking into gear, which is Wolf Parkinson White Syndrome. We did identify that in the NICU um, and it was an issue like one day. They put him on medication and everything seemed to be fine. And it's often called WPW. That's what it would casually be called. And it's an electrical defect. So he had, at the time, we didn't know how many pathways, but it's essentially extra pathways that send electrical currents um, that shouldn't be there. And so he would go into SVT, which is a extremely high heart rate, which would put him in distress. You know, obviously you're not supposed to just cruise around with a heart rate of 290. So, um, that reared its ugly head for us when we were at home. Sire caught his first cold, just like a run-of-the-mill cold, and he went into SVT. And 
at the time we didn't know, you know, like he was really fussy. And then all of a sudden he was kind of like pale and sweating and throwing up. And we're like, I don't know what's going on, but this is not normal. So we brought him to, you know, he was like panting almost by the time we got to the ER. And we didn't know, like in hindsight, we should have been on an ambulance, but we didn't know. Like we just, you know, he just was upset and clammy and we just knew it wasn't a good, but oh man, I'm just, I'm so glad the first time oof, we just didn't know. <laughs> I'm just going to say that a hundred times. Gosh. Uh, so we get there to the ER. They don't even let us sit down. We're immediately taken back, which, you know, um, if you're going to go to the ER and you're not waiting, I know people like to complain about those wait times, but I assure you being the family rushed back isn't fun either. And we get him hooked up to a pulse ox and his oxygen was 65%. Um, and we're like, okay. Um, you know, at this point, this was at St. Francis hospital ER and we were in the pediatric on the pediatric side, but the resuscitation room is on the adult side. So they threw him on a gurney. We ran through the lobby to the other side where the adults were because that's where their resuscitation room was that's what it was called at the time now in our new er it's called the acute room but it's where bad things happen and um so you know we had to try and get his heart rate down and we couldn't get an iv in him they're trying all these things i've probably stuck him 16 times and they it comes to the point where we have to cardiovert him which is with electricity which is what you see in the movies when they put the paddles on someone and they say clear Except for babies, it's these little pads. You know, it's not a full paddle because they're babies and we can't put the paddles on them. And they shock them. They shock Sire so his rhythm would go back to normal. Um, it did work. That was, you know, I thought the, the birth was the most traumatic moment. I think that one superseded it. Um, because that was like an out-of-body experience, too. You're watching your baby. They say clear. His little body rises up off the table from the current of electricity going through his body and you're trying to reconcile that and your head is apparent no pain medication because they couldn't get an IV in him. Um, that was wild. That was something I had hoped to never see again. Unfortunately, that was not the way it went down. And so we kept getting into the hospital. We did not have a CICU um, at this children's hospital. So he was in the PICU most of the time, a couple times on the floor, but mostly PICU. And every time he would get a cold, like he had, he had coronavirus at one point, but he had the OG kind, uh, the normal cold, uh, you know, just rhinovirus, the typical, everybody's run of the mill cold that you would never knew how to name unless you were in the hospital. Every time he had a cold, he would go into SVT and we'd have to go to the hospital and he'd have to get cardio over it with electricity. It was a really terrible time. And finally, one time it happened and we get there. They get a line in him, and they're like, well, his heart rate's not high enough to be considered SVT, but something's wrong. He's definitely, like, not acting right. And a nurse said, we cannot stay down here. We've got to get him up to pick you. He looks like he's working hard. And for all of you out there who aren't familiar with that term, that just means it looks like they're working hard to breathe to maintain their, their normal respiratory rate. Um, and she was like really pushing. She was like, we, we, I don't feel comfortable with this. We've got to get him upstairs. And really, as soon as we landed in the PICU, um, he was in cardiogenic shock. We didn't know this. And he, his oxygen dropped into the, like to 20 and they had to 
resuscitate him. And the doctor came out to me with a nurse and said, you need to call your husband. We're trying to resuscitate him, but we don't know if it's possible. Um, and again, I couldn't even cry. I mean, I was just like, okay, I'll do that. You know, I mean, it was just unbelievable. I just couldn't believe that was happening to us. And I called my husband. He dropped our child off with a friend. And, you know, he pulled through, but he was very sick. He was intubated again on the ventilator. We spent a week in the hospital that time. And then we were life-lighted to St. Louis because they couldn't do anything more for us here. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.